So, you got your shopping done? Thank God for Amazon. <laughs> I, maybe you don't equate that theologically, but Scripture says all good things come down from the Father of heavenly lights. Amazon is very helpful. So, you got two weeks from today? You needed that reminder, right? You're welcome. We're in uh, Luke chapter 1 this morning. I would ask you to go there if you have a Bible with you, maybe electronically or a hard copy. If you're new to New Hope, we also put the verses up on the screen. But there's Bibles in the chairs in front of you, in uh, like every other seat or so, in the racks in front of you. You can follow along that way if you'd like. What we're about to do, most Bible colleges spend a whole semester on. And we're going to do it in about, oh, 40 minutes or so, 35. Um, if you got a roast in the oven, just suck it up. It'll, it'll, it'll be there when you get home, okay? Hang on to uh, your seats uh, because we're going to go through this pretty quickly. Um, I'm going to pray with you first because what we're about to talk about is your life purpose. And it's no small task to take on what we're about to take on. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you for every soul that is part of this, that we can both through uh, people who are live here in the auditorium and catching this through the broadcast that each of us collectively together can turn our attention and focus our mind on you. And we would ask in response to that that you would provide us with insight through the working power of the Holy Spirit that we would be in place where we're willing to conform our lives to the things that you're going to show us now. That we would be willing to surrender our schedules in favor of your plans. I pray for that. In Jesus' matchless name and all God's people said, amen. I know right now you have in your mind some romantic images of what Christmas could be like. Most of us are thinking about Bing Crosby and coming over to our home and roasting chestnuts with us on an open fire. Maybe your bar is a little lower. Maybe you're just happy to not have a Griswold-type national lampoon Christmas. We have to take all those modern images and set them aside in order to really grasp Christmas. We have to go back, way, way back, and I mean before Bethlehem, back to the point of origins to Genesis chapter 1. Let me do that with you. Genesis 1 verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now, logically, when people read that, questions pop to the forefront of their mind, like, what in the world is that actually describing? What does that mean for me? What, what does it mean for me to be in the image of God? And if I am an image of Him, what's my purpose? Now, let me give you the Hebrew word. There's only a Hebrew word in your notes this morning. The rest of them are all Greek. This particular one coming up, you see it on the screen, Salem, it's the last part of the definition that applies to what we're talking about this morning, a, a representative figure. Now, that's kind of helpful to some degree, but it's not real clear. It's not a very declarative definition. Now, most people, when they read Genesis 1, they're thinking of the quality or the attributes of God. So we think of God as being intelligent, and therefore we have intelligence. And we think of God as being a creator, and therefore we're creative, and God is gracious, and God is merciful, and God is long-suffering, so we like to think of those attributes, that maybe that's what that's talking about, that image of God. Well, that would be true, but that would also be incomplete. So the real problem with unclear definitions or unclarified definitions is that we tend to make up in our mind what we think the definition is actually saying. And we tend to formulate our own concept around Genesis 1. But Genesis 1, verse 26, it, it does make most of us think of the attributes, and that's not wrong to do that. You do share in what's called communicable attributes, which makes sense because you're His offspring. It's logical that you would share in those things. But I'm challenging you this morning to think of yourself differently as you read Genesis 1, 26 that you would this morning think of yourself as an imager, and I mean that term intentionally that way, an imager with a function rather than just the attributes. In order to grasp this, just allow me two minutes to explain some 
intricacies of the Hebrew language that will help you put the pieces together. Let's put the phrase back up again, make man in our image, just that little section of it. Make man in our image, Genesis 1.26. Now, the word in, you may recognize if you're a student of the English language, maybe you're even a teacher, the word in is obviously a preposition. And prepositions affect nouns. Now, before I make your eyes glaze over with all the details of that, and, and I don't want you to have to necessarily think back to eighth grade English class, but think back to eighth grade English class for just a moment with me. This word in fits this way. If I say, I parked the car in the garage, in becomes the modifier in that it now indicates the location of the car. If I say, I wrote my name in ink, it's no longer talking about location. Now it's talking about the mechanism or the tool. Now, if I say, I broke a candy cane in pieces, that'd be very sad, but also, it's not talking about location, it's not talking about tools, it's talking about actions. Here's the way Genesis 1.26 is using it. If I say, I work in finance, I work in construction, I work in medicine, that's the way Genesis 1.26 is being used here when it uses the word in. It's describing a function. So in the Hebrew language, the way in is used as a preposition here, it's talking about a role, specifically your role as an imager. So the image that's being referred to here is not so much the attribute, it is that, but much more so, it's the function for which God built you for. If you've ever read Dr. Michael Heiser's book, um, The Unseen Realm, I would recommend it to you if you haven't, but this particular book, he makes this very clear statement. Every human being is an imager, so get that phrase in your head the way that you understand it is God built us as an image of Himself with a function and with a role. So in God's original design, He built us, He built creatures that would act like Him. His expectation is that we would act as He would act. And the intent is that we would act as a representative of Him whether or not He's present. Whether or not He's physically in the space that we're in, His intention is that we would represent Him as images of Him. In His absence or in His presence, little reproductions or, if you will, little mirrors of God, agents acting on behalf of God. Now, that's where Adam and Eve messed up. God expected them to act as He would act no matter the situation. But when temptation came their way, they did not act as God would act. They acted outside of godly actions. So the Bible is really clear. To be a human is to be an imager of God. Yes, the attributes for sure, but the function much more broadly speaking. Now stay with me on, on the broadly thought. Broadly speaking, whether you're saved or unsaved, believer in Jesus or non-believer in Jesus. It does not matter if you are a developing cell in a woman's womb, if you are just a cell in a, as an embryo, or if you are at the end of your life as an old person who's lost their memory. As a human, no matter what stage from embryo to last breath that you find yourself in, you do not cease to be in the image of God. You are an imager of Him. It is who you are and it is what you are and it is what sets us apart from all other creation. No matter the race, no matter the education, no matter the income level. Therefore, as an imager of God, a child of God, therefore deeply loved by God. And that's what Jesus was trying to emphasize to Nicodemus when he came to see him at night. And Jesus responded to him, Nicodemus, you need to understand that God loves the world, the whole world so much 
that He sent His only begotten Son. He sent me in order to rescue this planet. Now, any thinking person, when they hear what I've just explained to you, they're going to conclude, if that's true, then God must have a purpose for me being made in His image. And if you're thinking that way right now, you are correct to think that way. That is absolutely true because God does not do anything by accident. There is a definitive reason that you are here on planet Earth, and that's the reason we're doing the invitation here at Christmas time, that you are invited to discover your meaning. Now, before moving forward, just let me quickly rehearse with you what you just heard. God looks at every person as His imager. Every human being that is created, He sees them as a representation. Each human was originally built to be Him, as it were, on planet Earth. And I'm not talking about being a bunch of little gods running around, but I mean being the reflectors, the mirrors, the mirror image of God. However, the fall of mankind corrupted everything, and the imagers became flawed. If you've never read about it before, read it later today in Genesis chapter 3. It describes in detail what happened. The problem now is that sin is present because we are flawed. After the fall, every imager enters this world in a state of rebellion. Now, you may be thinking right now, I don't remember ever rebelling against God. Well, I would push back first of all on that. But also, if you think that's not true, all you have to do is go down to the children's wing, watch the two-year-olds as they beat each other over the head trying to get a toy. You didn't have to teach that two-year-old that, especially boys, they just do it because we are in a rebellious state. It's our sin nature that comes out of us. Now, in conjunction with God's activity in building us, in conjunction with everything that you just heard, there is this additional reality. God designed, God intends purpose for you which transcends time. It goes back before the foundation of this world. Just think with me for Ephesians 1 for just a moment. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1 should mean a lot to you. Verse 4 says this, speaking specifically of believers, just as He chose us, meaning believers, in Him before the foundation of the world. A theological mouthful, we could spend weeks just on that statement. But notice what's going on there. Intentional thought planning, time, eternity, purpose. They're all contained within that little sentence in Ephesians 1.4. See, that verse alone, that verse alone clarifies that God has intentional plans and His choosing of you. It confirms that He wants us to be part of His plans, which should mean for you this morning you are part of a much, much larger story than what you understand. And the things that are happening in your life right now, the hurts, the wounds, the things that you may have received in the last week or in the last month, or the things that may be coming your way in the next week that you don't even begin to anticipate, those things are not random. You're part of a much bigger story because there's purpose in everything that God allows into your life. All that to drive home a really beautiful point. God invites you to join Him. If you remember nothing else throughout the course of these three weeks, remember that. God invites you as His imagers to join Him. First and foremost, He invites you back into the relationship. He invites you to be restored to Him. And then He invites you to join Him in what He's doing. But that requires something from you. It requires a willingness to be interrupted in your life schedule, a willingness to allow God to insert Himself into your activities. Now hear this. God opens the door for you to join Him. You can certainly choose to reject it or to accept it, but know this. When God comes calling with His invitation to you, it is part of His purposes. It's part of the purposes that are laid down in eternity past. Gratefully, that relates to Christmas. Because you might be thinking right now, how does this all relate to Christmas? Well, I'm glad you asked that. 
When we open up the book of Luke, what we're opening up is a story of the origins of Christmas that are not actually found in the barn of Bethlehem. But what you find is that it originated in the throne room of a sovereign creator who is extending an invitation to one of his imagers. Go with me to Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Notice right away what you're seeing there, time, eternity, and purpose. Time, eternity, and purpose all interacting with an imager. God has come to one who's made in the image of God, and time, eternity, and purpose are all colliding at that moment. Beyond the boundaries of time, an angel warrior bows before the throne of God according to what we just read there, and he's been instructed to step into or enter into the fabric of time on planet Earth, and he's been dispatched from the very presence of God with a message that's been predetermined before the foundation of the world. Verse 26, let's break it down. Now, in the sixth month, the angel of Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. The sixth month, by the way, is speaking of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Elizabeth is the cousin of Mary. She's very old at this point. She's beyond the age of conception, but God miraculously has done a work in her life, and she's going to become the mother of John the Baptist. So Gabriel the angel shows up to the dad of John the Baptist and says, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And we don't get any detail about what he looks like. We just get the message, the information. I've been sent from God to give you a message. Now, that statement within verse 26 should remind you that the timing of God's invitation in your life always has eternal dimensions to it. They're not random. These are all rooted in God's plans. Keep going with me, verse 27. To a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, what do we know about Mary? I want you to picture her quite contrary to what you see in modern art. There's no halo around her head, right? And she doesn't wear a crown, and she likely doesn't have very well-hemmed clothing. She's living in a backwater town, a nobody from nowhere, but we know about her is that she's introspective. What you find in accounts of Mary's life is she's a person who really internalizes and ponders things, and so the word ponder is used constantly with her. But you also find that she's very submissive, and she's humble, and she's responsive, but she is not a pushover. And this is a woman who really knows God's Word, and she's adventurous, and she's intelligent. Now, physically, she's probably got a great complexion, bronze tan going on. She lives only 20 miles from the Mediterranean Sea coast. That's where Nazareth is at. And she's very young. She's got shiny black hair. Her brilliant white teeth are set off by that black hair and the bronze tan skin. And by our standards today, to be a mom, she's very young. She's probably 14, right in that range. Women began getting married when they were 14 in ancient Israel up to the age of 16, 17, but usually within that younger age range. And that's where we find Mary. She doesn't have a driver's license yet. She's super young. And the average lifespan in the first century is only 35. So when we think of average, we tend to think of lump sum, and that would be correct in this point. If you made it through your childhood years, you were fortunate because then you could live longer, maybe into your 50s. But there was so much infant mortality that the average lifespan was 35 years. Well, Mary's made it past childhood. She's into her teenage years, and she's living in Podunk Town, Israel, and her face is familiar because she's in such a small village. She's known by people there, and we're told that she's a virgin, and she's just been engaged. So she's got all the plans of a young bride. She's reading Bride magazine. All the save the date cards have been sent out. Her parents are lining up the caterer. 
And Joseph has given her something in the form of a, what the Bible calls a souvenir. This is a Greek word coming up on the screen. This engaged word means that something has been exchanged. So when you see the definition, it, it may have been a ring, but it may have been a necklace. It may have been something very precious to Joseph that indicated that she and he have come to an agreement. Now, Hebrew marriages always took place in two stages. There's the betrothal stage, and then there's the actual consummation of the marriage at the ceremony. The first stage was almost always arranged by the family. A young man would come to the father of the bride and would say, this is what my desire is, and the, the dad of the girl would begin negotiating with the young man. And they would determine what the bride price would be, a mohar. And a bride price was simply to ensure that the covering of the, the wedding cost would be covered, and that if the groom became dissatisfied with the bride, that there would be some financial compensation for the dad. So this mohar is being negotiated during this stage, and once the contract is done and it's sealed, the bride price is paid. It's referred to on the Old Testament, Exodus 22, verse 16. He shall surely pay the bride price for her to be his wife. So this is something that's been in place for hundreds of years thousands of years at this point, actually. Now, where Mary and Joseph are at is in this 12-month stage between the engagement and the actual ceremony because there was always a 12-month span of time in which they did not have real contact with each other. Even though the marriage was legally binding, there was to be no intercourse, no sexual encounter of any type between the two even though they belong to each other and they're legally married in the eyes of the, the nation, and especially in the, the eyes of the rabbis, they can't come in contact with each other. It's not permitted until it comes to the stage where the consummation takes place at the ceremony. That's where we find these two. And Mary has no idea that God is about to invade her world and allow her to join him in his work. Verse 28, and coming in, he, meaning the angel, said to her, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. Now, greetings, the Lord is with you, is not just saying, hey, how you doing? Right? It's not that casual. There's something very formal about this statement here. And she's perplexed by the statement. As a matter of fact, the word that's used here is a derivative of the word we get distress from in the English language, diatrasso. And this particular word means she's troubled, and she's not troubled at his appearance. We don't know what his appearance is. He may have come in looking like an ordinary individual, but culturally, men didn't typically engage women in conversations at this period of time in history if they didn't know them. But that's not what's going on here. This is not that. This is much more than that. It's the angel's greeting that, we're told, troubled Mary. So she kept pondering it, and that's where you get that next Greek word from. She's pondering and processing it. As you look at that definition, you understand she's an individual who takes things in deep and is trying to think it over. What is going on? I want you to say amen if you agree with this. There are times in your life when God is doing things that make absolutely no sense whatsoever. We all been there, right? Can't figure it out. You get to a point where you can look back down the trail and see that God was weaving a plan. But in the moment, you can't quite figure it out. You look back down the fence line and you can see all the posts in a row and you can see they keep going in one direction. But in the moment when you're working on that one fence post and it keeps wanting to lean and you can't get it in right, that one drives you crazy and you can't figure out what's going on. We're told that's kind of what this is, this, this distress that she's under. She's trying to process what in the world is going on here. Now, my experience is this. When those times come in your life when you cannot figure out what God is doing, those are the moments you need to lean into God even more because he's the one who alone knows what he's doing to shape your life. What's she pondering? She's pondering the statement, the Lord is with you. Now that's not a wish and it's not a blessing. It's not like somebody pulling out of your driveway at home and you're saying, hey, hope, hope you have a great trip. It's like, I hope the Lord is with you. 
That's not it. That's not this. This is a declarative statement. He's saying, the Lord is with you. God is with you in your life, Mary, and this is especially significant to you this morning if you have forgotten that if you are in Jesus Christ, God is with you right now in this moment. God is with you, church, no matter the hard times, no matter the good times. It always feels like He's with us in the good times, but not so much in the hard times. He's still with you. So she's processing this and trying to figure out this statement that he's just made. Go with me to verse 30. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Uh, Obviously, he's sensing fear or she's showing fear in some way because he's recognizing you don't need to be afraid. That's very consistent when people encounter angels in the Bible. Constantly, the angels have to say to them, don't be afraid. I'm not here for your harm, I'm here for your good. And so we find throughout the Scriptures, God is always encouraging us at this point of fear. Well, He's doing this for her in this moment by telling her who she is to God. God's with you, Mary. Don't forget that. I'm here to tell you this morning, God is with you if you are in Jesus Christ. Don't forget that. You want to deal with fear in your life. Remember that God is with you. That's exactly what you see the angel doing. And that's especially necessary as this imager is about to be invited into something that has never happened before and will never happen again. No one has ever been asked to do what she's about to be asked to do. But it's very important you understand the phrase that he just chose here. Look at it with me. You have found favor with God. Here's why that phrase is so crucial. The issue is God's choosing, not Mary's particular goodness. In Genesis chapter 6, when God chooses Noah, He said, I choose Noah. He's a righteous person on all the earth. But the issue that's brought up in Genesis 6 is God's choosing of Noah. The issue that's brought up here is God's choosing of Mary. Nothing is being made of Mary's particular godliness here. I'm not doubting that she's godly in her behavior. But the emphasis here is on God's sovereign choice. God is choosing her to do something with Him that He's predetermined in time past. So remember this, church. Finding favor with God does not always equate to getting the assignment that you want. The angel's about to drop a bomb on her life, and it's not one that she ever thought she would ever hear. Verse 31, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And if you're not real familiar with biblical language, in no uncertain terms, what the angel has just said to her is you're going to have a baby, Mary. So God has just exposed His plan, and the result of the plan is there's going to have to be a shift in her life from that moment on. Now, balance this against what you know, church. She's an imager just like you are, been created in the image of God with all the frailties and all the weaknesses of the fall of mankind. She's just like you. She lives in a backwater town. She has sin just like we have sin. Yet, God has invited her to join Him in what He's doing. I just want to touch on a detail with you before we move forward. It's kind of a cool thing you should remember as you work through the Christmas season here. In Luke chapter 1, we're told that they're supposed to name the baby. It says specifically, you shall name Him Jesus. If you go back to Matthew chapter 1, you find the exact same phrase. You shall name him Jesus or Yeshua, but Matthew continues out the thought by saying, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus is not an uncommon name. In the first century, it's a derivative of the name Joshua from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it's pronounced Yahashua. By the time Jesus comes on the scene, they've shrunk the name down, and it means Yeshua. It still means salvation is of God. But the name Jesus is as common as the name John at that period of time. 
There's lots of individuals who received the name Jesus because Joshua was a very popular name at that time, so they call him Yeshua. Now, naming a baby happens every single day. People are constantly naming babies, but giving birth to God never happens. And she's about to give birth to God, and it's never happened before, and it's never going to happen again. And so this is a God-sized assignment. So this angel has to clarify for her, what's different about this Yeshua? Why is this one so special? Verse 32 tells us exactly why. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end, says the angel Gabriel to a teenage girl who is an imager of God living in backwater Israel that she never thought she would hear. Now that kind of answers the question that Mark Lowry wrote about when he wrote the song, Mary, Did You Know? Yep, she knew. It's right there. It's there in ink. She knew exactly who this one was, but just so you and I are clear about what this angel is saying here, and so we understand the magnitude of this moment, who is this one? Colossians 1.17, look with me at this, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Before, meaning never created, He's always been. Or this phrase from Revelation 19, 13, His name is called the Word of God. Or John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1, 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That one, Mary. That one, Mary, living in backwater Israel, that one, I want you to name Him Yeshua for He will save His people from their sins. That one's going to get this remarkable name. Now for Gabriel who stands in God's presence, he has no doubt whatsoever that this will happen. God's purposes always happen. It's a definitive statement, another declarative statement when he says He will happen because there's no maybes with God. And so in verse 32, I want you to hear this because maybe when you get Christmas cards this year that have that verse on it, you'll remember what I'm about to tell you. When he says he will, he's making these declarative statements. He will be great. And the word I love from Scripture that is associated with the word great is megas. Megas is so much fun to say. You want to say it with me? Let's do it. Three, two, one. Megas. So the angel says, he will be megas, and you notice that megas is not qualified. Because when we hear the word great, we think, what, great soccer player, great cook, great at what? He doesn't qualify it, he doesn't clarify it, he just leaves it hanging. He's great. He's speaking of the nature and the being and the representation of God. And so the very next thing logically he goes to is he will be named with a name that is above every name, with a singular title, the Son of God. Now you just heard the holy angel say it, Gabriel, but if you go to Mark chapter 5, you find the demons saying the exact same name. Jesus is dealing with the demons and the demons shout out to him, we know who you are, Son of the Most High. They use the exact same title, which causes me to think, is that the name that we're going to know Him by in eternity? Son of the Most High God? They speak it with reverence and with fear. Is that the name that every knee is going to bow before and every tongue will confess? This one also, we're told, He will succeed in securing the throne. He's a legitimate member of the royal line of King David. And what the angel is referring to there is the promise that God made all the way through the Old Testament that there would be one who would take the throne of David from 2 Samuel 7 and from Isaiah chapter 9. And we need to remember this church coming into Christmas. Jesus did come to save the sin, the world from all the sins that we have among us. He did come for that reason, but He also came to fulfill God's promises to the Jewish people. What were the promises that God made? We know that today Jesus sits enthroned in heaven at the right hand of God according to Acts chapter 2. 
Acts chapter 2 says he ascended on high and he's at the right hand of God. But the scripture also indicates that he doesn't yet have the throne of David over Israel because the people of Israel have not yet recognized Jesus as Lord and King. But the Bible says very, very clearly that one day Jesus will return and He will establish His righteous kingdom on this earth. And so in light of that reality, there's two more I will or He will promises statement that are made here. He will reign over Israel, the angel declares. And He says He will possess an eternal kingdom, meaning a kingdom that will never end. What you should be noticing, church, is the entire emphasis of everything the angel just said is all on Jesus. Nothing is being said about the greatness of Mary. Now, when it comes to Mary, I find people go in one of two directions. Either the pendulum swings so far that to the neglect of Jesus they worship Mary, or it swings so far the other way that they neglect Mary and don't revere her. Find yourself in the middle. This is a special woman who really did follow after what God called her to do. But we don't worship her in place of Jesus, certainly, and we don't worship other humans. Now, with that thought in your mind, move forward into verse 34. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? Now, that's a legitimate question. She obviously understands what he's just told her. She understands what this, what this angel has just communicated to, the angel, to this imager, but she's not challenging him, rather she's mystified. She's mystified by the statement. Now, that reminds me, church, that it is okay to have questions when God brings assignments your way that make no sense to you. It is okay when you don't understand. Questioning does not make you an unbeliever. It means you want to understand. Unbelievers reject what they think they understand. Believers accept what we don't really fully understand yet, but we accept what God has said. So she's got this question on her mind. How is this possible? I am a virgin. Literally in Hebrew, I know no man. I've not had relations. So Mary believes the promise, but she doesn't understand the performance. This is one of the greatest verses in the entire Bible, church. One of the greatest statements here because by the clear testimony of Scripture, it's saying right there, Jesus was born of a virgin. And if you don't have that aspect, we may as well all go home right now because the Bible isn't actually accurate. If Jesus wasn't born of a virgin, then He isn't who He said He was. And if you don't believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, you are not in any measure a believer. Scripture is very clear. He's the Son of God and He's born of a virgin. It's very clear that Jesus and the early church fathers all held to this very, very strongly that He's none other than the Son of God. Even His enemies recognized that He proclaimed that when they said, we know who you are. John 5.18, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They understood exactly what Jesus was saying that he was. There's no confusion. And the super structure of Christian theology is built on the precision of this truth. If you're new to church, hear this. The essence of the gospel is that God became man by being both fully God and fully man. He was able to restore humans to God. So that means Jesus' birth and Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' ascension and Jesus' return, they're all integral. They all stand together or fall together. If Jesus were no more than just a mere man, he could not defeat sin and death, but praise God, he did. So, you have that reality that when humans pick and choose the passages of Scripture that they want to believe, what they're doing is they're setting themselves above God, saying that I know better, therefore I'm above Him, I'm above His Word. Keep going with me. God is really gracious in verse 35, and He answers her question. The angel sends, answered and said to her, 
the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. I remember in my teenage years and in my 20s, reading that passage over and over, trying to figure out how did that work? Because she asked, and we're told that he answered, but I don't really see the answer. But it was in my 30s when I came to understand, after studying this intently, what's going on here. What the angel has just said to Mary is, God's going to do something in your life, Mary, something that he planned in eternity past. And the entire imagery of what he says to her here is described and scented with the fragrance of the glory of God that you find in the Old Testament when God came down on earth. You've been part of the E2E study for a while, most of you. You might remember in Exodus chapter 40, we spent several weeks talking about how the Ark of the Covenant was built and about the tabernacle that the Ark of the Covenant would be housed in. We're told very specifically in Exodus chapter 40 that when that was all completed, that the glory of God overshadowed and the power of God came down upon the tabernacle. It's the same imagery that's used in Genesis chapter 1 when we're told that the Holy Spirit hovered over the face of the deep when God was creating the world. The same imagery and the same language of the overshadowing that's coming over the top of Mary. And this overshadowing has both the power and the presence of God, which reminds us of everything God did in the Old Testament. So there's this Greek word that's used here, very specifically the, the language that the angel used here to cast a shade upon or a brilliancy that will overshadow you. So here's what's coming out of the language of which the angel just used with her. Mary, your womb is going to be transformed as it were to become a holy of holies for God the Son to dwell in. God, who created the laws of nature, moves beyond the laws of nature, and that which will be conceived in her is the perfect imager. Catch this, church. Find this in Scripture, Colossians 1.15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. What were you created to be? The image of God. In the image of God, to function and act as God acts. It is not by accident that Paul wrote what he wrote in Colossians 1.15. Jesus is not flawed in any way. There's no sin. There's no fall on his part. He never betrayed God. He's perfect in every way. And that's why the writers of the New Testament constantly use the word image when they're referring to Jesus. Jesus is the image and the radiance of His glory. Jesus responded to Philip, if you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father because He's the exact image and the representation of God the Father. That's what Hebrews chapter 1 says. And then the angel doesn't let her go there. And he says, by the way, Mary, you want proof of this? You want proof that this is actually real? Go with me to verse 36. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. Six months of Elizabeth's conception beyond the age of conception to mother John the Baptist. She's gone past the age of conception and the angel is saying, God has already done the impossible, Mary. Is our God the God of the impossible? Absolutely is. And that's what the angel says next. Luke 1.37, for nothing will be impossible with God, Mary. Church, when God says nothing is impossible, he means nothing is impossible with God. And we live in an age today when many people have forgotten that truth. I personally like the translation from 1901 from the American Standard Version. Let me show you the way that it actually reads. It reads this way, for no word of God shall be void of power. Yeah, that's a beautiful way to say it. Or there's this question that Jesus asked, the pre-incarnate Jesus asked Abraham when he's 90 plus years of age, it was stated this way to him in Genesis 18, 14. 
Is anything too difficult for the Lord Abraham? God had just told him he's going to have a son in his 90s, and his wife, who's 89, is going to be the mother of that child. Is anything impossible for the Lord? New Hope Church, do not be guilty of putting limits on what God can do and cannot do in your life or on those around you. Do not put limits on that, nor should you ever think that God would never invite you to join Him in His work. Do not disqualify yourself. God is the one who determines who He will use and who He won't. Even a teenage girl in backwater Israel, God says, I'm going to work through you, Mary. And we could end right here, but I need just three more minutes. Three more minutes to give you two more verses that puts a bow tie on everything that we've just looked at. What is the proper response in your life when God interrupts you and brings things into your life that you didn't see coming? This is Mary's response. Verse 38, and Mary said, behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And that's why Mary gets a gold star in church history. You're looking at total surrender. Absolute zero pushback. She learns exactly the enormity of what God has just said He's about to do beyond anything that you can imagine. Mind-blowing. And yet this precious young woman submits to God's plan with a conscious knowledge of the shame that a premarital pregnancy will bring in her generation. She's willingly submitting to that, to the character and the nature of what God has called her to do as an imager. That's the trademark of a true believer. When God brings it your way, you respond to what God brings your way. And notice what she's done here. She's forfeited her plans, her ideas, her strategies, and she's welcoming God's activity in her life. That's how an obedient imager actually responds. Now, I know right now, some of y'all are feeling like you're unqualified or you're too damaged and that God could never use you. I'm here to tell you right now, otherwise, the potential within you is limited only by your willingness to allow God to work through you. You won't find too many people less qualified than a teenage girl living in the first century in backwater Israel. And yet God says, I can work through you. God determined from the foundations of the world what He would do through Mary. And I want you to hear this so you can carry this out the door with you. Because Mary only had to be willing to allow God to do this. First and foremost, what did God choose for her to become? A wife and a mom the best responsibility he could give her. And she gets to be mom to James. Yeah, that James, the author of one of the books of the Bible, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. When the church was surging forward, her son James is leading that church. She's the mother of Jude, another author of the book of the Bible. She gets to be present when the Holy Spirit falls at Pentecost. And best of all, she's there when Jesus raises from the dead on resurrection morning. That's a great resume, wouldn't you say? How cool is that? So do you think that Mary gets to the end of her life and looks back and says, man, I sure wish that angel would have never shown up. I would love to have lived out my plans. I didn't get to do things with my wedding the way that I wanted to do them. No. Absolutely not. And I know that's true because she's willing to function. She's willing to take on the role as one who's created in the image of God and therefore an obedient imager. God has a calling on you, church. Whether you're in occupational ministry or not does not matter. You can discover your greater purpose, but it all begins with being restored to God in the first place, and that happens through a relationship with Jesus Christ. He's the one that invites you.
to be restored to God, and then you can join God in His work. So I'm here this morning simply to ask you, are you in relationship with Jesus? If you'd like to know more about how to do that, how you can have forgiveness of your sins, I'll be down here in the front after the service. I'd be honored to talk with you. But there'll be individuals over in the prayer room. They'd be happy to talk with you as well. But I'm assuming the majority of us in this auditorium and those watching online right now are in relationship with Jesus. If that's true of you and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if so, God invites you to join Him. He invites all of us to join Him in what He's doing, but it requires a willingness on your part to set aside your agenda in the midst of your activities and allow God to interrupt you. He may choose to do that today, tomorrow, throughout the course of this month, and it can be as little as giving a bottle of water to someone in Jesus' name, or it can be as grand as becoming involved in something in the way of ministry in your life. I don't know what God has called you to, but you can be sure if you belong to Him, He has a plan for you. He has a role and a responsibility. It's your job to figure out what that is. I'm going to pray for you right now as I pray for myself that we would be willing to be interrupted during Christmas season because we all have our agendas, don't we? We all know what we want to get done. But submitting ourselves first and foremost to God and saying, go ahead, bring it, interrupt me. I'm ready to respond. That takes a huge level of maturity. Let's pray together about that. Father, we don't know your plans. We willingly admit that. We know that you want to advance the kingdom. But how you'll do that through each of us represented here, only you know. Whomever you bring into our lives today, tomorrow, or in the next month, I pray that you would help us to remember what it looks like to be in a place where we would surrender to you and that we truly would accept the invitation that you've given to respond to you and follow your lead. For some, Father, that involves coming to faith in Jesus Christ in the first place and beginning a new life with you. But for the majority of us, Father, we recognize it just means being able to be interrupted. Father, I pray that you would give us the maturity and the mindset that we would be willing to be interrupted. Put us in that place, and we'll give you the glory and the honor for everything that happens as a result. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.